Hello, I'm Owen Ward. Welcome to another edition of Essex by the Sea. I am exploring the coast of Essex, finding out about the amazing and interesting stories it has to offer. And part of the Essex by the Sea logo is some strange shaped objects which perhaps many people in Essex may not necessarily have seen. Although, on a very, very clear day, if you stand at South End or Shoebriness, you might just be able to spot them in the distance. I'm talking about the Munzel Forts that uh, are stationed, positioned right out in the Thames Estuary. And uh, thankfully, I know somebody who knows a little bit about them. Uh, Flo joins me uh, on this episode of the podcast to talk all things about the history of the estuary. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Now, these strange looking objects, the Munzel Forts, uh, what are they and what, what were they for? They're astonishing, aren't they? I think the reaction people get when they see them, whether it's live or in a photograph, is they immediately imagine War of the Worlds or something from Star Wars. And if you've never seen them, they are, they're very tall. Um, they stand 80 odd foot high and they look like aliens out in the sea. So these were actually positioned out at sea during the Second World War. You have to think back to the Blitz where London was being absolutely hammered by the enemy and we were under a, just a permanent bombing attacks the whole time. So Churchill went to the Admiralty and said, we need a way to stop this from happening because the enemy aircraft were flying over the sea. And as they were approaching London, although we were in the Blitz and we had the blackout, so the city was dark at night, the moon would be reflecting off of the River Thames and, and the glistening, which was used as a navigational aid by the enemy aircraft. So they would be using that River Thames to find the way up into the centre of London and drop their bombs. So the Admiralty needed to find a way to intercept the enemy aircraft before they got to our shores and did the damage. So they went to an amazing engineer called Guy Monsell and asked him to come up with a strategy, um, a design of some kind of defence structures that could be used for that purpose and that's what he did he came up with the Monsell sea forts so these are positioned out at sea strategically positioned all around the coastline uh, from Essex around to Kent and they're basically gun towers so there's two types of them there's an army fort which is the kind of war of the worlds type um, four-legged structures very alien-like um, 78 foot high and then there's also the naval forts, which are slightly different. They are 110 foot high and they are two cylindrical hollow concrete legs, very, very big, um, with the gun tower on the top of them. So they were all around the coast, um, started in 1942, and they did an amazing job. They shot down four, uh, 22 enemy aircraft and intercepted a number of doodlebugs as well. So they, they've earned their keep out in the estuary. And some of them are still there to this day, 80 years on, which I think is incredible, considering they were only designed really to be out there just for the wartime. So not for very long at all. And we're still talking about them today. And still proving popular for people to go and see them. Now, I've only ever seen them in photographs and, and you've taken many a picture of them. And we'll come <laughs> on to that in a bit. But I, I guess going back to that wartime, we had the coastal defences around the coast of Essex and, as you say, uh, Kent on the other side of the estuary. But I suppose it was a wide open door for the enemy to come, as you say, up the Thames and straight to London. It, it, it makes sense now, thinking about it, that we needed something there to protect that gaping hole in our defences. 
Absolutely. And, you know, Guy Monsell was an incredibly forward-thinking engineer because they were working under immense pressure to deliver something, a solution, in record time. And they did. You know, what they came up with was firstly the naval forts, which, in fact, when Guy Monsell went back to propose the forts to the Admiralty, they actually rejected them and said there's no way in the world that is actually going to work because what it meant was building the towers themselves on land, which was done around in Gravesend, and then they would be towed out into the estuary and sunk onto the seabeds. And they would be towed out by steam tug, they would release the valves, and the forts themselves would sort of embed themselves onto that seabed on the sandbanks. And the Admiralty just couldn't fathom out how this could feasibly be done um, without them toppling over. So Guy Monsell actually took a, he had to do a, quite a job of persuading them to, to accept that he knew what he was doing and that it would actually be a feasible thing to do. So they would have been built under secrecy. You imagine living in Gravesend or, or around that coastline at the time, and all you can see is these incredible structures emerging up the skyline as they were being constructed, and they wouldn't have known what they were for. It must have been absolutely incredible to watch because when you're up close to them now, they are absolutely huge. So I can't imagine what it must have been like to watch them being built. However, they were taken out into the estuary and the very first tower that went out was Ruff's Towers, as it's known, which you will see off the coast of Felixstowe to this day. It's still there. And if you look on YouTube, there is a phenomenal piece of footage that was taken on that very day. This was February 1942, when the fort was towed out and positioned onto the seabed itself. And it went a little bit wrong. So Guy Monsell's amazing plan didn't quite come off because they were meant to release the valves in a certain order for it to sink properly. But unfortunately, it didn't quite go that way. And the video or the cine film that was taken at the time shows the tower lunging to the left, firstly, which is correct. Then it should lunge to the right and settle. But in fact, what it does in between is it lunges backwards by 45 degrees and it's heart stopping to see this because it almost it feels like it takes forever. And you've also got to remember that the, it was fully loaded with guns, servicemen, the whole shebang on board as this was actually being done. And the fort lunges backwards and just holds for what feels like a lifetime before it nicely positions itself exactly as it's meant to do. And you imagine what the servicemen must have felt like being on that tower when that was happening. It must have been something. <laughs> well, quite heart-stopping, I would imagine. And, and Absolutely. Uh, I suspect some of them may have thought they were going to get wet uh, with that uh, I, just a little bit. the... Uh, yeah. Yes, I don't I mean, envy the person doing the laundry that night. <laughs> <laughs> so so that was the tower with the two columns and sort of a, a cross correct. platform uh, across yeah. the top. I can mm -hmm. see behind you on the uh, windowsill uh, of, yes. of your room there, you've got a nice model. So let me just yes. describe that fault then. And, and, and this is the one that you said that looks perhaps something out of War of the Worlds because we've mm -hmm. got four legs that would come up out of the sea. They're mm -hmm. at quite an angle. foot high. Yeah, they come to almost a point, and then on top mm -hmm. of that is a big box, two, three stories high. Is it two, two stories high? Two I stories mean, high with a gun on the top, three point seven inch gun on the top of that gun tower as well, which obviously isn't there now. 
but I mean that is some structure and as you say if perhaps you was in Tilbury or uh, Stapley Hope or mm -hmm. Leon C and you see these going out into the mm. estuary you must have wondered what on earth it was it must oh, you know I'd have I'd love to go in a time machine and go back and see it happen because these towers, the ones you've just described as the army towers. So there are seven towers that make up a fort, one entire fort, and they would have been towed out one by one again by the very same steam tugs. And if you go out to the estuary today, there were four um, sets of these towers originally. Um, sorry, three of the army towers, I forgive me. Um, and two of those sets are still there to this day. But when you see how they've been towed out, and again, very similarly, positioned onto the seabed, they line up absolutely meticulously. So the the engineering that went into the design of them firstly, and then strategically how they've been positioned, and they are the, the design isn't haphazard. They are the format that they're laid out with the various gun towers, Bofors Tower, searchlight towers, and the control tower are in a traditional fort, like a, a land-type fort, um, formation, if you like. It's a tried and tested way, but they line up absolutely perfectly. If you can look down the line of them and it looks like one set of forts because you can't see, there's no deviation in their positioning. It's remarkable, absolutely remarkable. I'm I'm in awe of the engineering. And bearing in mind, Guy Monsell was also, as I said, a very forward thinking engineer back in the 1900s, early 1900s, he was actually writing a paper which was talking about the proposal for a tunnel that would run under the English Channel. So many, many decades before it came to fruition, he was already on it. He had that idea and the concept already underway, which I think is remarkable. And he designed the Hammersmith flyover. So if you're ever driving into London to this day, you can see some of his work still standing there as well. And I guess those sort of pioneering engineers, as you were describing as well about how the, the powers that be needed a bit of convincing that this mm. would work. And I suspect when they saw this first naval tower, the rough tower, uh, sort mm -hmm. of careering over to one side, mm. I, I suspect that didn't help to convince those in power with the, the purse strings and, and uh, mm. the command to say yes or no to this project. It strikes me to, similarly to Barnes-Wallace and the bouncing bomb and all the yeah. tests and trials and demonstrations yeah. that that uh, took as well to convince the powers that be this would work if it was given the go-ahead. It's an interesting situation. Is I actually went to Barnes-Wallace's grave very recently. In fact, it's not, not far from me. Um, the the whole idea, you've got to think, is the Admiralty are sitting there having to deal with this enormous dilemma, this problem, this war that they're under pressure to, to come up with solutions for. And they go to these various engineers, these incredibly clever, innovative men, and they are genuinely thinking outside the box. And, you know, they're coming up with these wild and wonderful ideas and you know, you're right, they they did need some convincing at first, but these guys knew what they were doing. You know, they're in supremely intelligent men who have the most astonishing ideas and, you know, the capability of bringing them to fruition. And, you know, these towers were built so, so quickly as well. And that's a remarkable thing. And they're over-engineered. When Guy Monsell designed the army towers, they're on four legs, Yeah. He designed them in a way that if they were to lose a leg in any way, they would actually still stand. And, you know, the the um, 
the whole structure of them is remarkable. Everything about them is is over-engineered and better than it actually needs to be, which is probably why they've stood the test of time. So although they're looking, you know, the, the metalwork is looking very distressed today, the steel is incredibly rusty, um, the concrete legs are still okay. Um, and that's amazing. You know, I talk to concrete engineers, we discuss the feasibility of restoration and, you know, how long they're going to live, you know, how much longer have they got. And they they have a, a reasonable time scale ahead of them, considering, again, as I said, they were only built for a very short lifespan. They've done very, very well indeed. And that's partly then how they've stood the test of time and, and remain, some of them, standing to this day. What is it then about them that interests you so much? And, and why do you enjoy going out and photographing them as you do? My love of photography started a few years ago when I... I started um, photographing abandonment and derelict buildings, and I find the, the such beauty in decay. I love the textures. Um, I love the thought of you know the history of a of place and how it looks today. So and nature taking over that was very much my thing. And I would literally travel the world in search of abandonment. I went to Chernobyl. Went to some sort of outer edges of Georgia, which um, is presided over by the Russians, where there was some amazing architecture um, in a place called Abkhazia. So I happened one day to see a photograph of Red Sand Fort out in the estuary, and I was gobsmacked. It, it was everything I was looking for in a destination. It's imposing, it's stunning, it's decayed beyond belief. It was just absolutely beautiful. I had no idea where they were, but I knew I had to go and see them. So I was delighted to find out, firstly, that they were in the United Kingdom, which is enormously helpful. Um, and then I found a boat that was able to take me out to see them. So I went out one quite a choppy day, in fact, um, and they didn't disappoint. It, for me, it was love at first sight. I saw them from the water and they are just huge. I mean, 78 foot, 100 foot high. You can't imagine what that looks like until you get up close to it. It's absolutely remarkable. So that was my first trip. I took quite a lot of photographs and I, I had to go back because I had to get on to the fort. There was no way I could just sit at the water and look up at them. I needed to be on board. So um, I was very lucky in being involved with the restoration project um, a few years ago, which gave me access to the tower in Red Sand. So I was able to spend quite a lot of time up there photographing looking at the feasibility of restoration um and and taking people up there we did a lot of filming with um various film companies as well so it was a wonderful time to experience them and to to try to imagine what they might have been like to be actually a serviceman out there i was out in the winter when it was so cold you could barely touch the the steel of the fort because it was so so cold and I was out there in high summer when, again, you could barely touch them because of the heat. It was just oppressively warm out there. But they are just otherworldly. I've, I've slept on the roof. When you're lying out there at night on the roof and there's no light pollution, it is just the most beautiful, calming experience. And the towers, because they're positioned on the seabed, they rock slightly. They're designed to rock. Um, good old Guy Monsell and his engineering again. So it's it's soothing but unnerving at the same time to be sort of swaying slightly, <laughs> but just beautiful. And to be able to then obviously photograph them at sunset, photograph as the sun was coming up at four o'clock in the morning, shooting stars, you know, peregrine falcons. Uh, 
it's just magical just completely magical so i've now got a collection probably the largest collection of monsal fort photography in the world probably run into about i think i'm up at about 30 odd thousand images now so quite a few but i'm sure i can take a few more <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure they're the sort that uh, continue to keep on giving one of them does have a rather interesting history that followed the Second World War more than any other. And I can see yes. a, a flag behind you <laughs> of red, white and black. Yes. What's that? Well, we talked about Ruff's Towers in 1942 being positioned. And after the war, when the forts were decommissioned, um, for a while they were used as pirate radio station bases. And although Ruff's Towers wasn't used as a radio station itself, a sister fort called Knock John, which is out in the estuary, was, and that became Radio Essex. And one of the guys that was involved with Radio Essex was a gentleman called Roy Paddy Bates. And Roy was looking for another fort or another location in which to go off and broadcast. And he found himself stationed out on Ruff's Towers, which he, in 1967, claimed as his own fort. And he took it over and declared it an independent principality of Sealand. So it is now christened Sealand. It still stands to this day, and it has been permanently inhabited since 1967. The Sealand royal family, uh, whilst mostly based on land now, do spend a lot of time on the tower. It's permanently inhabited, if not by them, then by security and caretakers. They have their own national anthem, their own flag, as we've just said, their own currency. And they used to issue passports a while back. They don't do that anymore because of security issues, unfortunately. So that in itself, is, you know, this micronation is, is rich in history, adventure. It's a political enigma um, and a story of amazing eccentricity. And I absolutely adore it. I've been there a few times. I've been very fortunate to be invited to the principality. Um, and it's quite an adventure just to get there because the only way to board the fort, unless you take a helicopter out there, is to be winched off of a boat on a bosun's chair, seven stories high. <laughs> and for someone that doesn't swim and is not great with heights, it's probably not the best thing to do, but it was quite an experience, I must say. But I did do it because I'm now the Duchess of Sealand. I did it in a, a tiara and an evening dress just to make it sort of special. <laughs> what an entrance. What an entrance. <laughs> and Absolutely. There's so much we could cover just on the history of Sealand. That perhaps is one for another episode of, of Absolutely, yeah. By the Sea. Uh, Flo, thank you so much for, for a whistle-stop tour about the Monzel Forts. Um, there is so much to uncover, so much to explore, and, and your passion and enthusiasm for them is amazing. So thank you so much for uh, You're joining me. You're very welcome. Come out and see them for yourself. I'm sure you'll have an amazing time. Maybe <laughs> maybe in nice, calm, sunny summer conditions. You never yeah. know. You never know. That would be fantastic to do. Flo, thank you ever so much for joining me on this episode of Essex by the Sea. Thank you for having me. Don't forget, if you would like to support the creation of Essex by the Sea, you can do. Just visit the Ko-fi page. The links are in the description where you can leave a little donation. Any uh, donations that are made are very gratefully received. Thank you very much. So until the next episode of Essex by the Sea, thanks very much for listening.